Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the corner of 12th Street and Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with uh, my colleagues to and with this metropolitan congregation. These forums are conducted six, sometimes seven times a year to enable all who wish to come through our doors or to listen over the air to have a first-hand experience, an encounter, if you will, with the mind and spirit of a person well-versed and well-known in his or her discipline, and who cares deeply, who has a keen sense of right and wrong and all the gray areas in between. Our guest today is Professor Robert Coles. He is a child psychiatrist with special emphasis on social psychiatry. He is a research psychiatrist for the Harvard University Health Services, as well as Professor of Psychiatry and Medical Humanities at Harvard Medical School. He also teaches undergraduates at Harvard University. He is the author of over 700 articles, reviews, and monographs written for periodicals, newspapers, and anthologies. Some of his 35 books, imagine that number, include The Middle Americans, A Farewell to the South, The Old Ones of Mexico, Irony in the Mind's Life, Flannery O'Connor's Self, Dead End School, Saving Face, Head Sparks, and, not least, his five-volume Children of Crisis. I have the five volumes up here. He took note that they were very close to the Bible. <laughs> Rather, I took note. The, the title of the individual volumes of Children of Crisis are, and I think they are revealing, one, a study of courage and fear. Two, migrants, sharecroppers, mountaineers. Three, the South goes north. Four, Eskimos, Chicanos, Indians. And five, privileged ones. He won the Pulitzer Prize for volumes two and three. The way Dr. Cole's works becomes clear as you read a part of the introduction to volume one, which I'm going to do right now. He says, I am working under the assumption that there is still room, maybe a corner here and there, for direct, sustained observation of individual human beings living in a significant and critical period of history. By direct observation, I mean talking with people, listening to them, watching them, and being watched by them. By sustained observation, I mean taking a long time, enough time to be confused, then absolutely certain and confident, then not so sure, but a little more aware of why one or another conclusion seems the best that can be argued, or at least better than, than uh, anything else available. Dr. Coles is one of the most widely respected authorities on the political, ethical, moral, and spiritual development of children, especially the underprivileged and the overprivileged. And in, with, and through all of that is the fact that he cares deeply about the people whom he tries to understand, which I would think would be a, an appropriate precondition for understanding anyone. Dr. Coles, in short, is a man you will want to get to know. Even as I began to get acquainted with him at the 100th anniversary banquet of the Minnesota Harvard Radcliffe Club held last night at the St. Paul Hotel. So, here is your opportunity to get to know him and he to know you. Dr. Coles, welcome. Get you. That should be 
I'd like to share with you during this noon hour on an early Monday in the year 1984 some of the personal and professional dilemmas that I've struggled with in the last almost 25 years of doing the kind of work I've done. I stumbled into that work after I finished my training in child psychiatry in New England and went into the Air Force under the old doctor's draft. And I ended up down in the South, as some of you may remember, during the period of turmoil there in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. And I saw in New Orleans, I was stationed in an Air Force hospital in Mississippi, I saw in nearby New Orleans a whole American cosmopolitan port city go up in social flames, you might say. There were mobs and riots in the streets. Some of you looking at you were old enough to remember this. And children had to fight their way through those mobs to get into school buildings where they had been ordered to go by a federal judge. The federal judge said that four little black children should go into two elementary schools in order to integrate them. He was obeying the 1954 Supreme Court decision, now 30 years old. That federal judge had to be taken out of the city of New Orleans by a president who rescued him by making him a circuit court of appeals judge in Washington. The reason being that his house was in jeopardy and indeed his life was in jeopardy. Mobs gathered around his home and crosses were burned in front of his home. The little girls who went into those two elementary schools had a very rough time. They had to face those mobs every day in the morning and in the afternoon. And every time I give a talk such as this, I talk about one of those children named Ruby, I suppose because she was for me one of the most influential teachers I'll ever have. And I had a number of good teachers in college and in medical school, but none quite so provocative as this little girl who has become a continuing source of awe and wonder for me as I have followed her life. She's now 30 years old. When she was six, she was greeted at school by 50 or 100 people every morning who told her they were going to kill her and who called her every possible name of a vile and obscene kind that you and I could imagine. Who was this girl? What about her background? We in America place such emphasis on the background of people. And we learned in the 60s to talk about children who are culturally disadvantaged and culturally deprived. And we want for our children, don't we, the very best. We don't want them to be vulnerable. We don't want them to go through mobs in order to get into school. We don't want them to endure discrimination and suffering. Well, Ruby was vulnerable, and her parents had very little to offer her. And you and I, contemplating the little that her parents had to offer her, would no doubt lament her situation in 1960. Her parents had had no education at all, as we know it. They did not know how to sign their names. They were, I suppose we'd have to say, illiterate. Her parents had no money. Her parents were sharecroppers. 
from the Delta of Mississippi, poor, hard-working, long-suffering black folk whose labor, nevertheless, along with the labor of millions like them, have helped build up this country and make it great. Her parents had brought her into New Orleans at the age of three because the collapsing rural economy mandated the trek to the city. And in New Orleans they tried to make do, as the English essayists put it, to make do. The mother would take care of the children by day and at night would go to a bank and get on her knees and scrub the floor of that bank. And then she would come home and catch an hour or two of sleep and another day would dawn. And the father worked as a janitor and they dreamed that their children would go to school and learn how to read and learn how to write those magical achievements that mean progress for the humble people of this planet all over it. And now a judge said to Ruby, go to this school. You will become a new part of America in the state of Louisiana. The judge for so doing was buried in effigy in the well of the legislature of the state of Louisiana in Baton Rouge. And Ruby had to go through the indignity and the fear of threats and ultimately was escorted to school every day by federal marshals and a federalized National Guard. I was trained to find out what happens to children when they undergo stress. And in my mind, a child under stress is a child in jeopardy. And a child in jeopardy will ultimately become a child with symptoms of one sort or another. Don't we know, all of us, that we want for our children protection from jeopardy so that they will live better lives? What do we mean by better lives? Well, we mean more secure lives so that they will be able to think and talk and play and simply be without fear, without anxiety. Well, Ruby was going through a fearsome time, an extremely anxious time, not only in her own life, but in the life of the city of New Orleans, the state of Louisiana, maybe even the United States of America. Some of you who know Norman Rockwell's picture of a little girl and the people dressed in suits like mine, escorting her, these men, to school, that was Ruby. Ruby, as I watched her over the months, failed to develop the kinds of symptoms I expected her to develop. In fact, developed no symptoms. What she did is she went to school and she studied and at home she played. And I found myself puzzled by the dilemma before me as I tried to figure out this child's psychological development, and not only hers alone, because I was talking with other children, black and white in the South of those days, a generation ago, but only a generation ago in our collective national history. I think at a certain point it became clear to my wife and to me and to Ruby's teacher, maybe even to Ruby and her parents, although they were too tactful to make any statement about it, it became clear that a certain doctor was hungrily looking for symptoms in a child and being frustrated by the absence of them. 
One day the school teacher shared with me her puzzlement. I don't understand this child. She goes through such hell and seems to be so composed. She is so eager to learn. She is such a nice child. How can she take it? The implication being to take this and not in some way to show evidence of taking it, of suffering, is to be a source of confusion to one who watches it happening. I assured the teacher that sometimes the mind works slowly in children. These symptoms will development. All things come will develop all things come to those who wait. <laughs> Some of us have learned in one way or another a lay version of a familiar statement. Well, we waited in vain, it seems. I can tell you now, perhaps one of the longest follow-up histories in medical research. Uh, I'm still waiting, but no longer expecting. No longer expecting psychopathology to develop. One day I had a, an announcement forthcoming from the school teacher. I saw Ruby going into school today and I saw her talking to those people and I asked her what she said to them because I thought that you'd be interested in it, not that she wasn't interested in it herself. And she told me that she wasn't talking to them at all and then I thought to myself, oh, maybe she was talking to herself. But no, Ruby told her teacher that what she had been doing is praying, praying for the people in the mob. Well, I told the teacher my wife and I would be there that evening at the Bridges' home, and we had asked Ruby about that, which we did. Ruby, Ruby, I hear you've been praying for the people on the street. Oh, yes, you have. Oh, yes. Really? Yep. Well, tell me, Ruby. Why do you pray for them? Well, because I should. Should you? Oh, yes. A minute or two more of this and Mrs. Bridges came into the room. She'd been listening. She wanted to let me know that Ruby was indeed praying for those people in the street, not only at her own behest, but at the behest of her parents and of the minister in the church she attended, even at the behest of her grandmother, Pray for them, Ruby had been told, and did. Why, Ruby, I asked. Well, they need praying for, she said at the age of six. I said, well, do you think it'll do much good? Oh, yes, she thought it might. Besides, she said, we must pray for them. I said, even if it doesn't do any good? And she said, yes, even if it doesn't do any good. I said, well, why? And then I thought to myself, I'll say it. I'll say, you know, frankly, Ruby, I don't feel like praying for those people. So she said to me, and I'll never forget it, she said, well, sometimes I don't feel like praying for them either, but you should pray for them even if you don't feel like praying for them. I'm not so sure that I've ever heard a philosopher mobilize that kind of subtlety any better. And then with a little more prodding, I heard this when asking her why she prayed for them and why she prayed for them. She quoted to me as if finally to shut me up. After all, what she'd been hearing in school and at home, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's why you pray for them. 
That's what she'd learned. This was the moral education of an American child. The moral education of an American child. How many of us have this education? How many of our children have it? This is the year 1984, and many of us have heard a great deal about George Orwell. We've heard about the novel 1984, his worried vision of what might be, but there were many aspects to Orwell's reflective life. And before 1984 was written, he'd written a number of very important books, Down and Out in London and Paris, The Road to Wigan Pier, Homage to Catalonia. He had spent years among the poor and humble people of this planet, the English version of them in coal mines and among farm workers, in jails and in the hospitals where the poor die. They're in his essays, they're in his letters and book reviews, they're in those books I've mentioned, what, his reflections. And one of the most important reflections I think that he ever made is contained in this question that one can find in the road to Wigan Pier. Why is it, he asks, that some of the qualities in people we most admire take place in response to pain, suffering, and hardship? That is a question for us to contemplate. Many of us who spend our lives trying to insulate ourselves from pain, suffering, and hardship, and sometimes call with vigor upon any and every maneuver we can mobilize to live what? Lives almost unreal in the shelter they've mobilized for themselves. This is not to advocate pain, suffering, and hardship as virtues in and of themselves. Orwell did not say that, and no one has that in mind for anyone. But, but, this is, as Hardy said when he wrote his book Life's Little Ironies, this life is continually beset by irony, and I think as some of you may remember from the Old and New Testaments, when Jesus and before him Isaiah and Jeremiah contemplated the world, they were continually reminding people that sometimes those who have a lot maybe don't have certain very important things, and sometimes those who have little by virtue of that suffering and the trembling they go through every day in the course of their lives, maybe end up having rather a lot. Existentially, as the word goes, they are vulnerable and hurt and closer thereby to what? Well, closer to the kind of life certainly that Jesus lived as he walked among the poor and tried to heal those who were, hurt, who were hurt, visited the prisons, associated himself with the downcast and the exiled, the rebuked and the scorned, and admonished those in his Galilean sermons who had so much that they were saturated through and through with pride and self-importance. Pride and self-importance as against those who every day knew how tenuous and painful this life can be.
Little Ruby may not have had an education to fall back on in her family life. Her parents may have had a very rough time of it and she with them, but somehow she had what? Well, she had moral dignity. Some of us maybe are lacking in that upon occasion. When I compare her and many like her with some of the young people, and we all know them, don't we, who live in our privileged suburbs, those suburbs which are struggling all the time with divorce, with drinking and drug abuse and vandalism and delinquency, when I compare Ruby with some children I treated years ago who came from homes in which the parents were very well educated and very well to do, and yet the children were mischievous and rude and difficult in ways and had been brought to people such as me for reasons we all know. It then becomes clear, making these comparisons, that this life is not quite as simple as perhaps we want it to be. That some of us may climb our way up to the very highest ladders and yet stumble ethically. And our children with us, whereas others lowly have certain virtues. Now one has to flip that around and remind ourselves that there are others who are poor and who are as mean-spirited as the worst one we can imagine, even as there are some people who are rather well-to-do and live honorable and decent lives. And how does one account for all these paradoxes? I think that what children need, what children need as much as they need food and clothing and a good education, is moral purpose, is something to live for. They need not only to be given bread and psychological understanding, they need not only psychotherapy when in trouble and plenty of vitamins and the best possible schooling, they need something to live for, don't we all? Don't we all? The alternative being what? crass materialism, aimless hedonism, self-indulgence at the service of consumerism, the exaltation of the holy self. We need a vision larger than ourselves. We need something to believe in, as George Eliot put it in Middle March, he put something there is in us which yearns, yearns for sacrifice on behalf of a belief. And let that belief not be some man-made construct, some theory peddled by yet an additional theorist. Let that belief be transcendent, larger than us. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the vision of the Hebrew prophets, Jesus and his sayings and his example. Walker Percy, one of the greatest American novelists for my money in this century, puts it in his novel, The Second Coming, 
describing someone, one of those people who got all A's and flunked life. How do we find within ourselves an inspiration for moral conduct? How do we inspire in our children a desire not only to get and get ahead and get along, but to give, to give to others, to help others who are not having as easy a time of it as maybe we have to reach out for the neighbor in the laboratory or in the classroom, to give a helping hand and thereby become larger and better ourselves in the only way that matters in some moral and ethical fashion in giving, as St. Francis said and others before him, we receive. This is what Ruby knew. She knew, oh did she, she knew that one pays attention to what one hears from one's parents and in church and then tries to live it out even under duress. What do we want for our children? We know that we want to prevent coronary artery disease in them. And we know that we want them to have something called maturity and a healthy sexuality and that they should get 700s in their SATs and go to the best possible colleges. But what do we want them to do with all that? And what do we want to do with all that ourselves? Is it any wonder that all too many of us assault our brains with substances and wander lost and confused through the advertising pages of our newspapers and magazines trying to figure out if a trip to Patagonia somehow will relieve the kind of moral anxiety all too often we don't even know we possess. My profession, which has made a great to-do about character disorders, needs to understand what character is. How does it develop in people? How do our children become not only intelligent and healthy, but virtuous. This is Ruby's challenge to all of us. And thank you for having me here today, early in 1984, to bring it up with you, to share with you an encounter I had with a little girl, now grown up, an American woman, an American mother, an American worker, a decent fellow citizen of ours, and someone who contributed to the growth of this country through her obedience to a federal judge. Thank you, Dr. Coles. It's obvious from that how everyone here feels about your presence and about your making Ruby come alive for us. We uh, 
had really not planned a forum in January. January is kind of a time to catch your breath after Christmas, and then we start again in February. When we heard that the Harvard Radcliffe Club was bringing you to town for their centennial, we thought we'd try to ride on their coattails, and we're mighty glad that we have. We thank you, we thank them. We'll just take a, a break at this moment to allow those who must leave to do so, also to permit those of you who wish to pose questions on those yellow cards to do so and to pass them forward. Also to remind the radio audience that uh, they are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. And that our speaker indeed has been Dr. Robert Coles, child psychiatrist from Harvard. Before uh, questions actually surface from the floor, just before, sir, you, uh, you stood up to speak, you recalled to me uh, that you had been in Minneapolis other times. Perhaps you'd be willing to begin by recalling something of that. I found it fascinating. Get you wired up here. Well, actually, uh, I've been here to speak at McAllister, and but much more important, as important as that was, was that I spent some time here uh, studying school desegregation in the North. Uh, after I worked in the South, I went North, having become a sort of Southerner, I think having grown to love the region, still do, but I went back home to New England and started studying what happened in northern schools and went to a number of American cities, including this one. And in fact was here, as I well remember, uh, in June of 1968, visiting schools in Minneapolis when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. I'll never forget the hotel room and the call from my wife in the middle of the night when that came upon us in this country's history. And I've come here to the University of Minnesota and my mother comes, as I told the Harvard Club members last night, my mother comes from Iowa so I'm no stranger to this neighborhood, speaking geographically, and I remember as a boy being brought out every summer by my mother. She'd take my brother and me on the train, that sure dates me, on the train to Chicago from Boston, and then we'd switch and go to Iowa, to Sioux City. And that was a child's vision of differences. That there wasn't only one neighborhood, but that there were many neighborhoods. And that there wasn't only one particular state, but that there were many states. And how we have to learn to share our possessiveness with others. To share our sense of what belongs to us with others and to look for the way other people think and feel and live and understand that that has equal dignity with our own notion of what we ought to do, the way we talk, even the geography, which we consider to be either valuable and desirable or not so valuable and desirable. Oh, would I live here? I remember asking my mother, there's no ocean here. Well, she would say there are oceans here too. Oceans of grain that feed you. I think I better stop waxing here. <laughs> you introduced us eloquently and feelingly to Ruby. I I'm recalling that in your books you also tell the story of a 
child who grew up in a very rich Florida family. I think that's the other side of the coin. Maybe you'd be willing to share that story a bit. Oh, that's a, probably one of the saddest stories of my research. Uh, this was a this was a child who grew up in one of the wealthiest homes in the state. The family had everything, money and power. And the boy was the only child of uh, these very nice people. My wife and I got to know them. He was a grower and we were studying migrant farm children. But they were so hospitable to us. And the mother of this boy was a school teacher and very interested in psychology. One day uh, she told my wife that uh, she'd received a telephone call from the principal of the elementary school where her son at the time was in the third grade. And the boy had made this statement in school. When the teacher had asked the children what they want to be when they grow up, he said, I don't know what I want to be, but I don't think I want to be rich. And the teacher said, why, knowing this was very ironic for him to say that, since he was indeed quite rich. And the boy then quoted from the Bible, he said, well, if you're rich, you won't get to heaven. And the teacher said, where did you get that idea? And the boy said, quoting from that image that has to do with the needle the eye of the needle and who will and who will not get through the eye of the needle, as some of you may remember. The teacher then told the boy not to take the Bible that seriously. And uh, the boy asked her why, and the teacher said, well, because we've got to get on with this life. And, the boy was puzzled, and the teacher, frankly, was worried about the boy. So she told the principal of the school, who called up the mother, because he was worried, and the mother said, don't worry, my son is going through a stage. He'll outgrow that. You know about psychological stages. Well, a year later, we heard from the parents that the uh, boy had had another episode in class and he talked about blood being on the hands of some of the growers in the state whom he felt were not treating migrant children and migrant families as well as he thought they ought to treat them. By the way, he played with some of, with migrant children. Well now the school got alarmed again and I'll tell you where, you know where this boy ended up. He was sent to the local doctor who saw him talk with him for a while and decided that he needed what we call in the United States of America in the year 19, talk about 1984, we, he needed help. And he was sent for this help to a doctor whom he saw for a whole year. I don't know what I would have done if I were that doctor. It's easy to criticize him from afar. But the boy was having some troubles. And the troubles were interesting. One of his troubles was that his mother was in fact a very serious Christian lady, at least on Sunday. And so he listened very carefully at her behest to what was preached and what he learned in Sunday school and was a little, what shall we say, literal-minded about it. And the mother wanted him to be a little more relaxed about this on other days of the week, even as uh, she did nevertheless take him to church every Sunday. One of the bits of advice she got from the doctor was to stop taking this boy to church for a while. It seems that he was morally conflicted. Let it quiet down. Well, I won't go on with this because it, it'll take too much time and some other possible questions here, but you see the riddle? It's part of all of our lives, isn't it? You start reading books 
such as the Bible and take them to heart. For that matter, you take to heart some of the great novels that have been written, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy, and by golly, you're having, as we put it these days, a moral trip for yourself. You better watch out. What do you need, a little bit of counseling to take it easy? Let's have another one. Many of the questions here deal with the children of privilege and how do we, through regular education uh, and uh, Christian education and family life, convey uh, the kinds of values that sometimes poor children have in, by way of contrast. Well, this is very important and don't we all struggle with it every day. I, my students at Harvard are continually asking these questions as I have them read James Agee and George Orwell and Tilly Olson and Percy and O'Connor and the great Victorian moralists Dickens and George Eliot and Hardy. These are the questions we ought to ask of ourselves. What questions could be more important? Gauguin, I show them the Gauguin triptych that he did in Tahiti before he died with those wonderful questions in the bottom of it. We happen to have it in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and my mother used to take my brother and me to look at that triptych when we were children and she translate from the French those questions. Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? And of course that kind of questioning is ultimately moral in nature, isn't it? It's not only psychological, it's moral. What are we? What kind of, what does it mean to be human? Well, what it means to be human, of course, is to ask questions to examine the nature of this existence, to have consciousness, to have a capacity through language to reflect. Now you ask, what can we do? And the students ask, and I ask myself as the parent of three children, what do we do? Well, I'll give you an example of how children learn and don't learn. Sometimes I find myself saying what is right and wrong to my children. Then we get in the car and I find myself in that car a demon. I am driving in order to get someplace and I cut into other, ahead of other drivers. And I behave in a rude, thoughtless way in a self-centered and self-serving way, in a mean and grasping way, and I'm not just going into a masochistic orgy here. <laughs> I'm just telling you, isn't it an American truth that we all know, and by the way, 40,000 people a year die because of our behavior? We drink and then we drive. And we show our self-importance as we drive. And I tell my Harvard students this story. One day I was driving into Cambridge, Massachusetts, where there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of pride. And I thought to myself, I've got to get in there and I've got to get in there at a certain time. So on goes the heavy foot to the gas. And then I see a car going even faster than me and I think to myself, what kind of a driver is that? Look at the way he's driving. Who is that anyways? And as he gets particularly truculent and difficult with the other drivers, I say to myself, I know the kind of person that is. I figured it out by the kind of car he was driving and by the way he was driving and the glimpse I'd caught of him. And I figured out the profession of that person and where he was going and everything. He was going down on the business district in Boston and oh boy, he was probably a commodities speculator. <laughs> well, he, it so happens, and I ended up together as those wonderful red lights equalize all of us, the greedy and the law-abiding, the self-important and the lawful. And we were together for all of our greed, along with everyone else who was slouching toward Bethlehem that morning on the road. And, uh, 
I said to myself, well, there he is again. And sure enough, he picked up speed, but he didn't go into Boston. He went into Cambridge, and I followed him into Cambridge. And you know where he turned off? He turned off into the Episcopal Theological Seminary. <laughs> While I went to the Harvard University Health Services, I think we all have our parables, don't we? <laughs> to live by. We all have our little stories, and don't you think the children don't take notice of that every moment of their lives? I find my children taking notice of it, and I think you felt your children taking notice of it. You don't need any large-scale big lectures on this or that written by someone who's going to sell you yet another book on how to bring up children a hundred a year. You just need to stop and think, don't we all, about how to live an honorable life in the small ways. A little courtesy, a thank you. The president of Haverford College, John Coleman, listen to this. He went and decided for a few months that he'd try to find out how others live. He was the head of the Federal Reserve Bank in Philadelphia and the president of a distinguished American college. And he disguised himself and got a job collecting garbage, waiting on people in a restaurant. Now, he wasn't just interested in getting some kicks for himself. He came up with an observation. He wrote about it in, in a book. But he came up with an observation that I'll never forget. He said, I was collecting garbage in a home in Atlanta, a very plush, affluent home. And I saw the people turn their face from me. They just didn't want to say even good morning to me. How often do we turn our faces from others who, after all, are helping us out? And then he said, I stopped and realized, if, I, if they knew that I was John Coleman, president of Haverford, and head of the Federal Reserve Bank, they'd ask me in at the very minimum for a cup of coffee, maybe even want to give a reception for me thinking that they might get their kids into half of it, if nothing else. <laughs> well, I don't know. We don't have to necessarily hold receptions in our homes for people who are maybe helping us out with the garbage, but a little thank you, a little please, a little show of courtesy and thoughtfulness is noted by our children, or the absence thereof is also noted. And these are the important ways, and you can magnify them. Just think of a whole life and the way we are with others. Think of yourselves as students. I often do with great pain how many times I was waited on in the cafeteria and was too busy talking about myself or listening to someone else important, namely a fellow student, talking about himself, to even say thank you to the people who were waiting on us. And usually, in fact, when the food wasn't good, all those people heard from me was, yuck. <laughs> Colleges ought to teach not only further lessons in reading and writing, but colleges are to connect those lessons with the lived life. As Emerson used to put it, again and again, character is higher than intellect. And those whose books we read, we must remember, like us, were writing those books out of the intense moral struggles of their lives. They weren't just writing books in order to hand a book to you. They were writing as all writers write, out of conflict and contemplation and rumination and the intense experience that goes with trying to figure out what they believed in. Another question. 
from the audience. I have heard of your work in Nicaragua studying children of war. Could you talk a little about this and mention a few of your findings? I've been working in Northern Ireland and South Africa and Nicaragua and Brazil trying to find out what happens to children who are caught up in social and political and racial turmoil in other countries. Between Catholics and Protestants in Belfast, between the white and black people in South Africa and caught up in Central America in the terrible wars going on. They are all too close to us. And once again, one sees how children, often combatants, if you remember your recent Northern Ireland history lessons, how children have been part of these paramilitary groups. Once again, one sees how children, even young children, and certainly children who are 12, 13, 14, can get very much ideologically stimulated and understatement, impassioned. I don't think we know enough in this country about the power that various kinds of social and political ideologies can have for children. I wouldn't want necessarily a lot of them for our own children. Our problem, however, in contrast with many of our children is that we don't know what to teach them. That if they're overstimulated ideologically in some countries of the world, maybe ours, flounder morally. I was told by the headmaster of one of the best-known American private schools in New England that oftentimes they have a great deal of trouble there with some of their brightest students who seem to be, as he put it, morally adrift. In any event, what I am observing is that Sometimes even seven, eight, and nine-year-old children are capable of intense social and political commitments. One at times would only wish that such commitments were not quite that necessary, while all the time wondering how we might inspire our own children to do some good deeds. Thank you. We're nearing the end of our time together. I remind those listening on the air that they've been hearing the Westminster Town Hall Forum emanating from downtown Minneapolis and that our speaker has been Dr. Robert Coles, child psychiatrist from Harvard University. We are in college and medical school. We are grateful to the Harvard and Radcliffe Clubs for bringing him to town. Grateful to David and Mary Beth Kohler for helping to make it happen in memory of Bessie Lindquist. Yesterday we had an after-church forum uh, by way of anticipating your visit. Uh, two professors from Augsburg College uh, who are admirers of yours spoke about your coming and outlined something of your thought. And in conclusion, it was said, Come and hear Dr. Coles, be provoked, work at observing his spirit, be blessed, catch some dis-ease. All of that could be wonderfully redemptive, and it has been. I'm going to put to you one other question, sir, that perhaps we can close off on. You mentioned it in passing. It, it, it came to mind as, as you were speaking. This phrase, slouching toward Jerusalem or Bethlehem, perhaps you'd uh, elucidate on that expression. Well, it's a line from Yeats, uh, but uh, what I think uh, Yeats had in mind is uh, the ordinary struggles we all have and bear as we make this earthly trek. After all, we're here once. There are so many riddles that it's our both privilege and problem, continuing problem, to try to solve. 
what this life means, the more I've, as I've worked with children now for 25 years, I realize that their questions, as I said earlier, are not only psychological and aimed at, at, at answering some of the emotional difficulties and problems they have, but they are ultimately the questions that moral creatures, young though they be, have. If I could show you drawings of children, and I've accumulated thousands of them on slides, I don't haven't put them in slides. If I were to put them in slides and show you these drawings, I could show you that these children, in their own way, with crayons and paints, are asking the same questions that Gauguin and Van Gogh and others have asked, and Kathy Colwitz and Munch, and, and of course our writers that Beethoven asked, especially in the Ninth Symphony, freedom, dignity, how can we achieve it not only for ourselves but for others? The greatness of this country, don't we know it? I was thinking of it and talking about it last night for the group of lucky people there who were commemorating the great university's uh, involvement with this state. The greatness of this country is the freedom that it has offered us. And you know in this state that tradition of populist freedom, a very important contribution to America's social and political history. But freedom has responsibilities. We don't only want freedom for ourselves, we want to offer it to others. And we want freedom not only of speech, and of religion, but freedom from want and from fear. We want all of us to feel in some way worthwhile and have that feeling be part of the life we're living. And they read last night what Minnesotans said a hundred years ago in, in 1884 about the future a hundred years hence. And so here we were last night thinking of our future a hundred years hence from this time, January 1984 to January 2084. Lord knows we have to hope and pray as perhaps no other generation has had to that we will be alive as a species that we will not have obliterated ourselves, all of us, from the face of this earth. That we will not have brought some horrible, horrible nuclear apocalypse upon ourselves. That is one consideration that we have to make as we contemplate the future. And we also have to hope and pray, as they did after all, they were doing this just after that great, terrible, momentous moment in American history, the Civil War when this country really fought for its soul, culminating in Abraham Lincoln, that greatest of American presidents, going to Gettysburg and, and making that statement of forgiveness. Just like Ruby, Lincoln and Ruby, my wife who was a history teacher, one day looked at Ruby and she thought, this is, this is an aspect of Lincoln this child, healing and forgiveness. And what we have to hope and pray for is that that spirit will become more a part of us so that we will not have hungry people and homeless people and hate and meanness and selfishness abroad this land. That in the year 2084, it be an anachronism looked back upon something that passed. A hundred years ago at Harvard, they were wondering whether women have the intelligence to go to college, whether women ought in any case be educated. And we heard those expressions, even from the president of Harvard, not because he was a bad person or a restricted person, he was a part of an age. And our challenge last night was, how do we liberate ourselves from our own 
assumptions and blind spots and leap into a future that we hope will be better. And it seems to me that that leap would require us to say, a hundred years from now, by golly, with all the might and power and wealth that we have and with all the knowledge we have, we, the educated people of this planet, that there no longer be hungry children by the millions, that we can feed people who are, after all, our fellow creatures, and also that we have a sense of solidarity, not only with our neighbors in the town of Edina or the city of Mil Minneapolis or Milwaukee or Boston or whatever, but that we have a sense of solidarity with all human beings, God's creatures, no matter what their color be or their language or the territory in which they live, that kind of earthly transcendence would be a step toward what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Jesus and his disciples kept urging upon our ancestors. Thank you.